All right, welcome to our next session in our um, class on systematic theology. We've kind of been working our way through really just kind of the main points of theology. We started with theology proper, which is the study of God himself. Bibliology, which is the study of the Bible. Angelology, which is the study of angels, Satan, and demons. Anthropology, which is the study of people. Hamartiology, which is the study of sin. Christology, which is the study of Jesus. And then we did two sessions on soteriology, which is the study of salvation. The first time, we talked just specifically about the gospel, what the gospel is. And then last time, we spent a significant amount of time talking about the security of the believer. And once that we are saved with God, that our relationship with Him is secure. And as we continue on through our list, um, next is pneumatology. And pneumatology, this um, comes from the Greek word uh, pneuma, which means breath or spirit. So this is the study of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going, to cover, we're going to cover three things. One is, I don't believe, at all controversial. One can be controversial. And then we're going to spend just a little bit of time talking about some more of the practical aspects of the Holy Spirit. And so the first and most important thing that we need to know about the Holy Spirit is who He is. And there's actually a very simple three-word sentence that I use to describe the Holy Spirit. And it's... Simple as it is, even though it only has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven letters, it is a very theologically uh, dense statement. And that's to say that He is God. And so there's, there's, two, um, there's two parts of this. There's He versus it, and God versus created or like God or whatever. He is God. And He does not assume gender as much as it assumes um, personhood. It is not an ab- he is not an abstract force, but a person. And he is God, having the same level of deity as God the Father and God the Son. And so, for those of you who have been around the longest, um, theology proper, we spent some time talking about the Trinity. And when we talked about the Trinity, what we established was is that the more that you talk about it, the, the, the more you're going to drift into heresy. And so we just kind of say it as simply as possible. There is only one God, and this God exists equally in three different persons. Three different personalities, but only one God. And so the Holy Spirit is fully, is fully God. And so the primary passage for that is in Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, this story is the story of Ananias and Sapphira some of the original followers of Jesus. And so all these, Jesus, all these followers were selling their property. Uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 1, they were selling it for, for the poor. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit... And have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Here's our key sentence. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Now you can't address this story without just talking about the extremity of it. And just what a crazy story it is, even though we're specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. I mean, essentially what this guy did was, you know, he, he sold a piece of property to give the money away, which is an awesome thing. 
And basically, he, I mean, he didn't have to do that, was what, was what Peter said. You didn't have to do that. And once you sold it, you could have said, hey, man, I sold this for $10,000, and I'm giving you five, which would have been amazing. So the thing that he did was very amazing, but in the process, he lied about it, which, and, which is just awful and, and dumb, and I'm sure he regretted it instantly. Um, but what we have here, and theologically, beyond just kind of the, the, the dynamics of the story, Peter says in verse 3 that you have lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says, you have lied not just to human beings, but to God. And so essentially is equating the Holy Spirit with God. And that is kind of the, the primary passage that people go to. The other passages that are all throughout Scripture refer to the Holy Spirit as having the characteristics of God. It says that no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So he has the same, he has the same knowledge as God. The Holy Spirit indwells all people. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, just like God. He has certain characteristics that only God has. And so the Holy Spirit is, is fully God. But it's also important for us to recognize that the Holy Spirit is not just simply an impersonal force. And I don't know how much uh, the theology of Star Wars has affected our view of who the Holy Spirit is, but I, I suspect that when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of, we think of a force rather than um, a, a person. And so in Acts, uh, not Acts, Ephesians chapter 4 um, verse 30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So he's talking about, hey, verse 29, hey, don't, don't, don't talk ugly, but build people up. In verse 31 it says, don't be bitter and angry and do all these bad things. And in the middle of that it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now you cannot grieve a force. A force has no personality. A force does not have... Um, emotion, and so there is personhood. And again, we need to make sure, we talked about this when we talked about theology proper, we talked about this in Christology, do not confuse personhood with humanity. Personhood essentially is an independent will, um, emotions, um, that, uh, you know, whatever, it's, it's the thing, and again, this always offends somebody, and the thing that makes us different than a dog it's the thing that makes us different. Maybe we'd something say for us and a lizard. People, people get a little weird about their dog. You know, I mean, dogs are different than chairs. There's a difference between something that's alive and that's not. But there's also something that's different between us and a dog. And, and there's a common thing that we share, that angels share, that God shares. And that's the idea of personhood. Emotion, will, independence, those kinds of things. And so, and kind of this demonstration of emotion is not an impersonal force. And so, primarily, you'll find this in, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, a belief of the Holy Spirit as an, imperson, as an impersonal force. And so, at our very basic core level, we need to make sure that we understand who the Holy Spirit is. And again, the best way to describe that is He is God. He, he is equal in, God, in, 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 in the God, Godhead with, with the Father and with, with, with Jesus. And he is not an impersonal force. He is not an it. And so as a, very, as a very simple shorthand, it's really good for us to say, okay, the Holy Spirit, he is God. Now, 
it's important for us to kind of think a little bit about um, what, the, what role does the Holy Spirit play in our lives. And there, there are several things that the Holy Spirit does, in, in, including here in verse 30, the one about grieving the Holy Spirit. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed um, for the day of redemption. So in that, we have that He has, he has sealed us, which is essentially you know, kind of like God just kind of putting His mark on you. It's something that the Holy Spirit does. And this kind of goes back to our discussion last time about how once we have salvation, we know we keep it. I mean, when, when God puts His seal on you until the very end, and so when, when you have that in you, you know that you have God forever. So that's something that the Holy Spirit does. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, and we're going to do a deeper dive on this. Um, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. And so there is a baptism, a, a, a coming upon, an immersion, and basically that the Holy Spirit comes to be in us, is present with us, He seals us, is baptized us. This is different than water baptism. You can just think about it as like the presence of God in you. And so this is something, and this is going to be really important here in a few minutes, to... Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that everyone, it says, we were all baptized by one Spirit. And Paul uses this as a platform to talk about the unity that we have, even though we're all very diverse within the body. The unity we have is that the same Spirit has baptized, has sealed, is in, is, is, has come into each one of us. Um, the Holy Spirit, I mean, um, when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, they're asking him about it at the end of the Gospel of John. Um, they're asking him about the Holy Spirit. It's like, hey, listen. He says, I'm leaving, but it's going to be good because when I leave, another helper is going to come. And he's describing the Holy Spirit. And he says, it's actually better that the Holy Spirit comes than for me to leave. Well, one of those is obvious is that Jesus as a human was limited to one place. When the Holy Spirit comes, he can be with all of us individually. And then he describes the Holy Spirit's role as guiding us into truth. And I think that is a very important role that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives. Is that, okay, so the Spirit is present in us. He has sealed us. And what's He doing while He's in us? And I think one of the primary things that we need to consider is that He is guiding us into truth. And so that has both a negative connotation and a positive connotation, which is you're doing something stupid and the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, that's stupid, you should stop that. That is guiding you into truth. But then there's also a more positive element where something that you don't know, where the Spirit will teach you something that perhaps you don't know. Um, that particular doctrine when it comes to um, the Scripture like you're, you're reading the scripture and you just really feel God's presence and you, and you understand something in a way that you didn't and you feel God there. That's called illumination. And that's something that the Holy Spirit does. He is constantly guiding you into truth. So there's, again, there's a convicting of sin, but then there is also a, um, a, a positive teaching. I'm going, I'm going to tell you things and help you understand things that you don't know. And also with that, in the guiding of the truth, there may be things that you know, but also the Holy Spirit in guiding you into truth is going to help you apply things that you already know. Well, you, of course you already, you already know this. Well, this is what you need to do about it. 
And when when we teach on Sunday morning, I, I, I especially try to talk a lot about that, that I believe that in that moment you're hearing something brought everybody's hearing the same thing this is the message but at the same time that everyone is hearing the same message i believe that the holy spirit is individually putting on people's hearts very specific to you applications and so i don't feel the need to be able to understand 200 different attitudes or situations that people are in i can trust that the holy spirit God in you, the presence of God in you, that He is going to guide you specifically into, hey, that thing He just said, remember, you just did that the wrong way with your spouse just yesterday. You should totally not do that anymore. That the Holy Spirit plays that, that, that role. And so, as teachers, as pastors, that actually can provide a lot of comfort, that my, um, my role is to, is to proclaim truth, um, and it's the Holy Spirit's role to convict of sin and to guide you to what you specifically need to do. And so that puts pressure off of me for small group leaders, for any kind of teacher, to feel like that they have to be the one that convicts. They have to be the one that tells you specifically what you need to do about it. When really, those kinds of things, there's a real partnership in the teaching and what the Holy Spirit's going to do through teaching. And so those are just a few of the primary roles that the Holy Spirit plays, but we should really delve into um, spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts is the kind of thing that um, has historically, especially in the last 70 or 80 years, has become incredibly controversial. Um, There are two um, camps, if you will, on on this issue. And anytime there's a camp, there's usually a spectrum of sorts. And, and, and one of them is called charismatic. And, and, and on the other side, what we'll just call cessationist. Cessationist. And what this has to do with, with the, in the idea of spiritual gifts, is that there are miraculous gifts, healings, miracles, tongue speaking, these kinds of things. And... And, and on a spectrum here, on the realm of you know, charismatic to cessationist, you'll have people that will all the way over here that will say, not only are these gifts still around, but they should be normal and typical for everyone. All the way over here to not only are they typical, are they, do, are they not typical, they don't ever happen. And if you say that they're happening, you probably have a demon. Okay. And so, typically, most people, charismatic or not, whether or not you go to a charismatic church or a non-charismatic church, most people, I think, are trying to live in kind of a middle position where we're, we're, we're trying to understand each other and believe that everybody has different kinds of experiences. But often, what happens in... This is just kind of the way, especially Americans do Christianity, is that we feel like we have to take hardline camps... And then judge, and judge the other person. Okay, this person has a demon, according to them, and and these people don't have any idea who the Holy Spirit is, and may not even be Christians. And so we fight like that, rather than rather than having what I believe is a more gracious understanding view. And so again, if you've been around here for too many of these sessions. You understand that there are a handful of things that I feel very dogmatic about, and I try to limit those things to things that have to do 
specifically with the gospel. And beyond that, I try to be a little bit more open-minded, a little more open-handed. That's not to say that I don't have a strong thought about it. It's just I want there to be um, openness and kindness and friendship. And so about the deity of the Holy Spirit, which has to do with the very nature and character of God and the personhood of the Holy Spirit, very dogmatic about that. I do not believe that there should be any debate about this. But I'm very comfortable... um, being friends with people who have a very different perspective on this than me. I'm comfortable leading a church that has a broad range of thoughts on this. And so I just want to just kind of help us just kind of put a few things together, kind of a, a, a groundwork for what I think some of the most important principles about this are. So we'll start here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters... I do not want you to be uninformed. Well, this is kind of this is just this is where this starts. They were already experiencing a lot of confusion around spiritual gifts. And so he starts here by saying, Hey, I don't want you to be uninformed. Because you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. And therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so they were obviously, they had some influence in their past. Of a, they had a very spiritual past. They weren't becoming atheists into becoming Christians. They had a very spiritual idol worship where there was a lot of just spiritual activity where spirits were speaking. And so he's trying to help them understand, okay, you've experienced this in really bad ways. Let me help you understand what it is in a Christian context. Verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. It's important for us to start here, stop here for just a second and, and, and delve in, because what Paul has already done is he's already obliterated this. Because his very point here was there is only one Spirit. There's a lot of different gifts. The Spirit manifests Himself in a lot of different ways, in different kinds of service, different kinds of working, different kinds of gifts. But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. And so it feels to me that once we start fighting about this and saying this is normal Christian life, everyone must look like this, versus, no, if you're doing that, you have a demon. Once we even start there, I think we've missed the point, the primary point of what Paul is trying to communicate to us, which is unity. We'll keep going. Each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Verse 7, verse 8. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Okay? So there's a couple of principles that we need to make sure as we're thinking about this relatively controversial idea of spiritual gifts. We've already... Um, we've already come across two very important ones. One is everyone, everyone has one. Everyone. 
he distributes them to each one. Um, he says, verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation is given for the common good. Two, the purpose of a spiritual gift, common good. A spiritual gift is meant to have a spiritual effect in the life of someone else. That is what a spiritual gift, that's what its purpose is. They, he, he equates gifts with service and working. Common good is how he describes it. Okay? Three, this is something that the Holy Spirit determines. The Holy Spirit decides. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. Okay? And I would, I would love to just spend all my time talking about this, but next happens in this, in this passage in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a long passage. I don't have a whole lot of time to read it. But it's the passage about the body. The body where it's like, you know, everybody has a different place. Everybody has a different part of the body. And you kind of use these illustrations where if you're a hand, you don't think, well, I'm no good because I'm not a foot. And he says, well, I mean, if, if, if you're an ear, you don't look and say, man, I'm awesome. I'm an ear. I'm glad I'm not a stupid old eye. And he kind of, so he, he basically rebukes people both ways. You should not think that you, there's something less than in you because you have one gift versus another. And you should not think that you are better than someone else because you have it. So you, should, you shouldn't think bad about the gift that you have and you shouldn't be prideful about the gift that you have. Again, we're rebuking everybody here. Everybody's getting rebuked here. Well, you have that gift and I think that's crazy da, 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 and there's something wrong with you. Well, you don't have this gift. There's something wrong with you. And, and, and so we're already, we're already messed up. Okay? And in fact, the thing that he says, which I love... On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. In fact, if anything, the people who feel like there's something wrong with their gift actually are the most special ones. And again, he's talking about unity. So that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers... Every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Again, the purpose of all of this is unity. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And God is placed in the church, first of all, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, guidance, tongues. And then this is very important. Verse 29. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And so in these rhetorical questions where he says, um, do all have these gifts, I mean, he's expecting a rhetorical no here. And so the idea being is there's not one gift everyone has. And I think it is very important for us to understand that. And so, in verse 13, which we've already looked at again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. 
So in the very same passage, and I'm going to explain to you a little bit better for those of you who might be a little confused. I just wanted to set all this up first. Um, what we've said in this very same passage is a couple things, is that everyone is baptized by the one Spirit. And then he also says that not everyone ha- not, there's not one gift that everyone has. And again, on the spectrum, there's all sorts of varying levels of intensity here. But the thing that is said often in some charismatic circles is that you know, first, first you get saved, then you get baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is, happens later. And when this happens, you will speak in tongues. Again, not everyone says this. Some of my best friends... Some of my best pastor friends, I would say, are tongue speakers and have a more charismatic view, more charismatic worship services, but would not say this. But this is said, and that that baptism is subsequent to salvation, and everyone who's been baptized by the Spirit will speak in tongues. Okay? Now, I think that this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 speaks against that. That everyone, everyone is baptized by one spirit. Everyone is. To form one body. So it's not something that is for some Christians and not for other Christians. And then he also says that not everyone speaks in tongues. So he's saying, all of you, even if we say, well, not maybe, maybe he's talking about all of them happen to have been baptized in the spirit. You know. But maybe not everyone has, even if you're willing to say that. What he's saying is, all of you have been baptized by the Spirit, but not all of you speak in tongues. But what has happened is, is that these people, they have an incredible experience where they feel like this, they have this kind of second powerful experience with God, and they believe that this gift comes upon them, and it allows them to, they feel like it allows them to communicate with God in a different way, a more emotional, more powerful way. They feel like it deepens their relationship with God, and I say nothing bad about that experience. The problem is, is I don't think that you can point to Scripture to say that that sort of experience is intended to be universal. In fact, I think this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 says something very different than that. And so I think that once we start elevating one particular approach to Christian spirituality as being the one, um, we miss the very point that I think that, that Paul is bringing out here, which is incredible unity through diversity. And so, I, again, I, I throw rocks, and I think that, that Paul throws rocks, not at either of these perspectives as far as the way they are personally experiencing God, but the way that they t- interpret their experience of God as to what that implies about someone who has a different experience with God than them. And so it is very important to me personally, and as a pastor, and this is kind of sets a foundation for me, to say that I believe that God works and moves in a lot of different ways. And I think people over here typically have a more emotive, relational relationship with God and have something that should be coveted by these people. And these people typically are a lot more grounded in knowing and studying and knowing the details of God's Word. And, and there's, there's a stronger, more academic approach over here that I think is, should, should be envied by them. And I think we should be the kind of people that not view it more like a spectrum, but more like a triangle. 
Like, how can we bring all of these things together, this emotive, relational with God, but also an academic, I understand and I'm learning approach with God. And I think if we can bring those things together and we can learn from each other, then we experience the fullness and richness of the body of Christ, which is the thing that Paul is trying primarily to communicate here. And finally, we'll, we'll, we'll end with this. What I believe, and so, again, the way that this is said is that you're baptized by the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And then even if you don't say that, I think that what people have had in their head that the evidence of whether or not the Spirit is alive in you is the presence of these more miraculous gifts. And what would these people say? That the presence of, of the Spirit in your life is determined by your Bible study methods and how well you know things. But in fact, there is a very strong go-to passage that says what the evidence of the Holy Spirit in one's life is like. Galatians chapter 5. So I say, walk by the Spirit, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so what he's describing here is that there's a battle that goes on inside you. And historically, this battle has been described like there's a person that has a demon and an angel on each shoulder. And, and I'm trying to decide if I'm going to listen to the demon or I'm listening to the angel. And that the battle is external to me and I'm choosing between two people trying to make my decision. Paul describes it very different. It's not an external battle, it's an internal battle. And there's two things that are battling. The Holy Spirit, God in you, and the flesh, which is you. And so when the good versus evil, it's not external, it's internal. And in the internal, it's not God versus Satan, it's God versus you. You are the bad guy in this. And they're in conflict so that you're not going to do whatever you want, which is really good. I don't... I should not want to do anything. I should not do everything I want to do. And the Holy Spirit keeps me from that. And then he describes this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. Hatred, discord, jealousy. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. You know what a faction is? It's a team. It's a division within the body of Christ. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. It is crazy ironic and very frustrating to me that the spiritual gifts that God gives us, which was, were meant to communicate unity and diversity... And that the power of the Spirit in us is supposed to bring love, joy, and peace versus factions and discord and jealousy that the issue of the Holy Spirit has, has, has managed in American, contemporary American Christianity to the exact opposite of that. To provide great division and um, disunity. And so, I would imagine of the people who are who are, who are watching this, that you may take a different position about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and about speaking in tongues and the importance of it 
And probably there are plenty of people whose experience of these things are very different than mine. There are probably people who, who come from a more charismatic background who believe that this is essential to their life and want it to be a part of everyone's life. There are people over here who maybe came out of that and say, man, I don't like that anymore and I see the dangers of that. Or there are people over here, I mean, there's people all over here. I, I've gotten in trouble in my life with, with, with both extremes. And, and I'm comfortable with that. And here's the thing that I want everyone to be comfortable with is that there is a rich diversity about how we experience God and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And even as we're asking questions and even as we're trying to figure this out and we're reading and experiencing different things, I want this to be the kind of thing where we are seeking to understand and we are pursuing unity, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Because that's what he says... Paul says that is the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you'll know that the Spirit is in you. That will be the result. If the result of what you're doing is providing dissension and disunity and factions and rage, then it's something, but it's not the presence of the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit will bring the fruit of the Spirit. And so, and I have, and I have seen that demonstrated by people all over the spectrum. And I've seen it not be demonstrated by people all over the spectrum. And I think it's important for us to take from Paul the primary message of what the Spirit being in each one of us is, which is it is, it is bringing our unity through incredible diversity of gifts and passions and backgrounds and experiences. So that is a whole lot. I mean, I mean as with a lot of these things, I have a seven-hour lecture that I give on this topic, and, and that was my best 40 minutes of it. So appreciate you being with us, and look forward to next week. We're going to talk a little bit next time, I guess. Uh, we talk about uh, the doctrine of the church. All right. Questions? No? Come on! There's lots of good questions. I said lots of things that should... It means something has stopped. So, so, so the, all the way from the miracle gifts should be universal all the way to the miracle gifts don't exist anymore. In fact, to the point to where someone will say that none of the spiritual gifts exist anymore. And that no one has the spiritual gift of teaching. People who have natural gifts of teaching and we make them teachers. Which the thing that I believe about spiritual gifts is that a spiritual gift is not known by how good it seems, but the thing that, that Paul says here is that it's, it's, it's done for the common good. It's, it's a spiritual effect. Um, the spiritual gift of teaching is not the ability to tell a humorous anecdote and to make people like it. The spiritual, the spiritual gift of teaching is the Spirit is present and people are learning. And my, one of my best examples of this, I was in a, a team, a summer team that went to Ukraine once, and um, we would go out in pairs and, and share the gospel with Ukrainian students. And I'm telling you, there's not anybody who can make a more clear presentation of the gospel than me. It doesn't matter what language it is. I mean, I'm, it's just like, here's, what, here, here's, here's you, here's sin, here's God, here's Jesus. And I'm like, and you want to receive Christ? He's like, no. It was like, no, everywhere, no. And I'm like, Come on, man. And then all these other people, man, were coming back in the day. He's like, man, you won't believe I had four or five people receive Jesus. I'm like, what on earth? Where, what's wrong? And so then I went out with this one girl, and, and, and she was sharing. 
And I'm convinced, I mean, there, nothing that she said made any sense. Nothing she said made any sense. I don't understand what you said about Jesus. I don't understand what you said about sin. In fact, if what you're saying is the gospel, I think I'm out. I don't, I don't believe, I'm not sure I believe anything that you say. And it's so confusing. And, 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 I was just, and then the person that we're talking to, now she's crying. And she asked her, do you want to receive Jesus? And she says, yes. And then I'm like, wait, 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 wait one second. <laughs> Can you explain to me what you think that means? And so then this person, who had never heard the gospel before, repeats back to me an infinitely more clear understanding and expression of the gospel than what was communicated to her. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's it. You should totally pray to receive Christ right now. And I'm like, that's, that, that's something. That, that's something. That, that to me is the Spirit showing up in it. Your ability to do it is very, it can, is, is very different than the Spirit doing something in the people that you're doing it for. And so, how do you know if you have the gift of hospitality? Oh, I like having people over to my house. No, that's not the gift of hospitality. The gift of hospitality is when people come over to your house, they feel God's present and feel loved and welcomed. That's the gift of hospitality. It's what happens in people. The gift of teaching is not the number of laughs or the number of, of I was like, hmm, that's, oh, wow, I didn't know that. I've never heard it explained that way before. Both extremes, right? That's interesting. I never knew that. And, oh, that was so fun. It's, I mean, God did something in me. Okay? And so, anyways, you asked a very simple question. I went on another speech. So, so cessationists, again, they, they come in varying varieties, but at, at a minimum, they believe that the miracle gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, healings, those kinds of things, the Holy Spirit doesn't give those anymore, all the way to the extreme of spiritual gifts no longer happen in any way. We just call things spiritual gifts. Sorry, I should have explained that better. It's a little harried. Organizing groups of people is not in and of itself a faction. I guess by a limited definition of the word faction, you could say that it is. If you say that it is, you know, a group of people unified around a certain idea or something. What, what the Bible is describing as a faction is a group of people who are unified against another group that they're supposed to be unified with. So if a church like ours, hey, we want to collectively come together and say, this is kind of how we want to do church. We want to have a Sunday morning service that looks like this, worship that looks like this, small groups that look like this, a more you-come-to-serve kind of mindset. That's what we want to do. That's how we feel like we're going to be unified. That's not in and of itself a faction, unless we look at a formal church and say, 
they're so stuffy and only old people go there and they don't get it anymore and, 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 and. Then it becomes a faction. And so a denomination is a larger group of churches that say we want to organize around some governing principles, some certain theological principles. But at the point in which that denomination says we're it and you're not, then it becomes a faction. So I'll just call a couple out because I don't care. Because if you're going to be like this, you'd like this. The Church of Christ is one. Um, missionary Baptists are another. Um, that believe that their church is the only church. Um, there are some over here on this. Some apostolic churches. Um, which is a brand of charismaticism. You not, some United Pentecostal churches can be like this. Um, where... The only people that, you know, that are saved are the people within our group. And that is a faction. But their theological principles that are different than mine doesn't make them a faction. If we have a perspective that says what I believe, which is by all different kinds of approaches to God through Christ, unified in the gospel, different approaches and perspective, we're all together reaching the world for Jesus Christ. That's not a faction. That's, that's, that's unity through diversity. Um, and so, you know, I think some of the most factionistic churches are the non-denominational ones sometimes. Because they, they've decided that denominationalism is bad. There's something wrong with it. And we're going to do it right by having independent churches. That's just another brand of, you know. There's a church, I don't know, we think about this church. You're driving down their old wire, which I drive on almost every day. They're, they're not non-denominational. Anybody? Undenominational. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Good for you. It's, it's Church of Christ. It's Church of Christ what it says. So I guess I said, I'd say I don't know anything. It's, and Church of Christ would say that they're not a denomination because they don't have an organizing board that oversees them all but they do have unifying principles but there's no board that could come to one church of christ church and say you're not a church of christ church anyways that's that's we're talking about that a lot next time when we talk about ecclesiology and denominations things like that i'm more than happy to talk about it right now but so that to me that's when it becomes a faction your attitude towards people who are not you who follow jesus but aren't you and that has always been very, very, very important to me. That we have an attitude that says um, we're all on the same team. You know, we're not, we're not Burger King and McDonald's. Two, think, two people trying to do the same thing, competing over the same person. Um, we're, we're Procter & Gamble. Anybody? Procter & Gamble. I sell diapers to Walmart. You sell toothpaste to Walmart. We're on the same team doing something a little bit different trying to accomplish the same goal, right? We're trying to, as a team, raise up our brand and we all have the same client base. We're all trying to do something different with them with the, sim- with the same objective. So the, it's a different team, but we're all one team. And so that's, if we're going to make a business model, that's the, that's the comparison that I like to use. <laughs> hmm. I, but only people I know from Procter and Gamble, Target, 
Walmart. These are all the Procter Gamble people I know. Basically, every, most everybody I know. What do you do? I either work for Walmart or you, you're working for working for Walmart, you know? <laughs> then I'm a one-off. I serve people who serve people that work for Walmart. Anyway. Yes? Yeah, so if there is an internal battle going on inside you and one of them is the voice of God and one of them is your voice. And I think that's an important principle. That's, that's point number one is to recognize that the, the, number, the, the greatest enemy of me living a spiritual life is me. And I'm not trying to get you to be some sort of, you know, you know some, I can't even think of the word, some self-effacing, you know, masochist, is that the right word? You know, that you're supposed to, the, the worse you think about yourself, the better off you're going to be. I don't want to go to some crazy extreme like that. But to recognize, hey, I can't trust my impulses. The battle is between the Spirit and me. Okay? And so, then, and it sounds crazy when you say it this way, then I have at least two voices in my head. Does it make you crazy? That's just a lot. That's just real. I have two voices in my head. How do I know which one of them is God's voice and which one of them is my voice? And one of the best ways that we do that is by giving fuel to God's voice in your life. Which, we describe this in a series... Was it this spring? Was it last spring? When you've been here so long, we did a little um, a series on the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the series on the Holy Spirit? We talked about this concept of spiritual breathing. Okay? So when you think about breathing, you know, there's some stuff I'm trying to take in and there's some stuff I'm trying to get out. And so what am I getting out? I'm, I'm confessing, I'm recognizing sin, I'm confessing sin, I'm getting the sin out, and then what am I getting in? I'm, I'm breathing in God's word. I'm breathing in God. I'm breathing in prayer. I'm breathing in c- good community, and I'm giving God's voice a louder voice in my life. So you come, you know, let's do a little commercial. You come to church. You come to church, and God's voice for an hour and five, an hour and ten minutes is very loud in your life. When I when I when I'm praying. I'm trying to silence all this other stuff and I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying to let God's voice in. I'm, I'm reading His Word. I'm trying to let God's voice be, be louder. And so I really do think it has to do with a lot with inputs. What, what, am, what, 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 am, I, what am I taking in? Um, this is not going to be one of those things where I'm like, well, you should stop watching TV, don't go to movies. I mean, I'm, 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 not, I'm not that guy. Um, but taking in more of God and, um, and, and, and regularly confessing sin. Not because our relationship with God is insecure, but just it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual discipline to recognize sin in my own life and then to, um, and just to keep a clear account relationally with God.
And so then, then, then the Spirit just gets louder. And there's another verse that I think is really cool. It's Ephesians 5 where it says that, um, don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Which most people will just apply the first half of that as if that's, if, as if that's the point of that passage. As if the point of that verse is to say, don't get drunk. It does say don't get drunk. So I'm not saying it doesn't say don't get drunk. It does. It says stuff like that in Proverbs 2. It says, man, it says that strong drink is a mocker. It mocks you. You think you don't know what that means, you've never had strong drink. I mean, strong drink is a mocker. It makes fun of you, right? Okay, but that's not the point of that passage. The point of that passage is, 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 is a, 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 an extended metaphor, an illustration. What happens when you take in alcohol? I'm going to take something that is external to me. I'm going to make it internal to me. And I'm going to hike so much of it into me that it begins to take control of me. It's still me, but I've taken this external thing to put in me that is essentially taking control of me even though it's still me. Right? Don't do that. That's debauchery is what Ephesians says. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Take something that is external to you which really now is in you, and allow it to be so much in you that it controls you even though you're still you. It's not robot, but it's any more than you would like to think, well, it wasn't me, it was the liquor. No, it was you with the liquor, right? (laughs) It's still you, but I'm allowing this external, internal presence to be so large in me that he, he is in control. So I think that that's the illustration. But then it's like, well, how do you do that? Well, get the right things in and get the, the bad stuff out. Anybody else?